So this morning, we're going to take a look at how Jesus fought temptation. But before we look at Jesus, I want us to think about us. How do you fight temptation? Think about it, honestly. What do you do when you face tempting situations? Let me give you some examples. When you find temptation, do you just like try really hard so that you'll stop feeling jealous? Like just try really hard until that jealousy goes away? Is that what you do to, to fight temptation? Maybe you grit your teeth until the anger goes away. I'm so angry, but I'm just going to grit my teeth until it goes away. Have you ever tried that? Lots of people try that. How about busy yourself or distract yourself until the lust goes away? I'm just going to get really busy here. I'm going to binge on Netflix. I'm going to go find out what's in the refrigerator. I'm going to do something else until maybe that'll just go away, right? Okay, these are very common ways. You don't need to raise your hand, but we've all fought sin this way, right? What we're going to see this morning is that Jesus doesn't fight sin in any of those ways. He fights sin in an entirely different way. And I hope that we will all leave here this morning encouraged because the ways I listed earlier, none of those work, but the way that Jesus fights sin works powerfully. So let's take a look at Luke chapter four. We're going through the series, studying Luke's gospel. And we want to take a look at what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. So as we read these verses, let's be asking this question. What is Luke's main point in these 15 verses? Remember, we want to be watching for things that Luke emphasizes, things that he repeats, things that he highlights, because those are all clues that he gives us to help us see what the main point is. So what is Luke's main point in this passage? Let's read through this 15 verse section. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, keep that in mind, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit, keep that in mind, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, here comes a temptation. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Powerful answer. Second temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Third temptation. Satan is persistent, isn't he? And he is. And he, Satan the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and now Satan quotes scripture from Psalm 91. Satan says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So we see what the main point of this passage is. I mean, it's obvious. Something about temptations, right? Three different temptations repeated. Jesus overcomes every one of them. But the question I want us to focus on is what does Luke say about how Jesus resists the temptation? I think that's an even more specific focus of his main point. And notice two things. One is that Luke starts this passage talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was led by the Spirit. And then at the end of the passage, Luke concludes by talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Holy Spirit at the beginning upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit in power at the end, which means that the Holy Spirit was working in Jesus the whole time. So all through this passage, there's the work of the Holy Spirit, which shows us that one way that Jesus resisted temptation was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, young people, this is one thing you're going to want to remember. Kids, young adults, okay? One way that Jesus fought sin was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that one, okay? But then there's a second way that Jesus fought against sin. You all know what that is already, right? Three times he's tempted, and three times Jesus answers with Scripture. Luke repeats that three times. So I think that's the main point of this passage. Jesus overcomes sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. Kids, what's the first one? Power of the, kids, help me out here. Power of the Holy Spirit. What's the second one? The Word of God. Okay, let's try this together again. Kids, what's the first one? The power of the Holy Spirit. Adults, you can help out too if you want to. And what's the second one? The Word of God. All right, now let's go through each temptation and look at what's the point of the temptation. What actually was the devil tempting Jesus to do that was so wrong? And then we'll see how Jesus fought these temptations by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. So the first temptation, let's read verses 1 through 4 again. See what happens. Verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Notice Luke emphasizes Jesus' physical hunger here, right? And so the devil encourages hungry Jesus to work a miracle and turn this stone that was in front of him into a loaf of bread to, to ease his hunger. Now, why would that have been wrong? How's that a, a sin to do? And it's because of what Jesus quotes from the scripture, which is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, now, what does that mean? What does it mean to not live by bread alone? 
I think to understand that, we've got to read the whole verse of Deuteronomy 8.3. So here's the background, then we'll read the whole verse. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is reminding the people of Israel how faithful God was to them through their 40 years of wilderness wandering. And look at what he says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he, God, humbled you, Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So God led Israel into the wilderness where there was no bread. No bread, no wheat to grind, no stores to go buy food from. There they were in the middle of the wilderness with no food. Can you imagine being in that setting? There you are, and you're getting hungry, and there is no food anywhere. Now, God intentionally did this to humble them because it was clear, it would be clear to them that there was nothing they could do. There they were, middle of the wilderness, no bread, they're hungry, there is nothing they can do. Okay, so feel that the humility, I'm hungry and there is nothing I can do. So what does God do? He speaks and a miracle happens. The next morning, there is manna all over the ground. What is manna? Anybody ever eat sugar-frosted flakes? Okay. Way before you're done. Okay, some of you. I'm old. Okay, so sugar-frosted flakes, way too much sugar for these days. But anyway, they were good. But it's just like sugar-frosted flakes, flaky, sweet, uh, wafery kinds of bread that was just spread everywhere. And get this, for 40 years, every morning, miraculously breakfast. Manna was right there, except for what day? The Sabbath. Don't gather on the Sabbath. There was enough on Thursday. You gather it, it'll keep. You'll have it for Friday. Uh, no, you gather it Friday for Saturday. I get those mixed up even in this country. Okay, but think about it. For 40 years, except for Saturdays, every morning, God miraculously provided manna for them to eat. And God did this to teach them. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here's the question, tough question to think through. What does it mean to live by bread alone? I think it means living based on what you can do. It's living relying on yourself based on what you can do. You're there in the wilderness, there is no bread. God wants to humble us, so we see there's nothing I can do. I'm used to living based on what I can do in my self-reliance. Here I am, and there is nothing I can do. So God intentionally taught them, you are not able to live based on what you can do. You're not able to live based on self-reliance. Watch what I do. And then God provides manna. That's what it means to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, to depend upon God, to look to God. I am so limited in what I can do. God is unlimited in what he can do. And then, of course, God provides manna to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, relying on yourself, 
Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's commands, God's promises, the miracles God works rely on God. So the phrase, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord means don't rely on yourself. Rely on God. Don't depend upon yourself. Be humbler than that. You really can do nothing. Truth be known. Anything you're allowed to do, it's because God's allowing. So rely on him completely. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on God. Now, let's take Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and, and, and apply it to Luke chapter 4. So what was, how was Jesus being tempted to do that? Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and he was hungry. You'd be hungry, right? 40 days. He was hungry, and the devil said, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I don't think the devil is questioning whether Jesus was the son of God. You, you could take it that way, and some commentators do. But even later in this chapter, when the demons are cast out, they, they know, you're the son of God, Jesus. The devil knew full well that Jesus was the son of God. I think what the devil is saying, Jesus, you're hungry. Since you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Go ahead, do it. Now, why would that have been wrong? It's because he would not have been relying on God. Relying on God would mean saying, Father, I'm hungry. It's been 40 days. I'm hungry. What do you want me to do? I'm looking to you. I'm relying on you. And God might have said to him, it's not time to eat yet. I will strengthen you. Rely on me. Or God might have said, it's time to eat. I'm going to miraculously create manna. Or God might have said, it's time to eat. Turn that stone into a loaf of bread. And he would have done it. Nothing wrong with doing any of those things. But see, if Jesus had ignored God and just, I'm hungry. I'm going to turn that stone into bread. That's self-reliance. He'd be ignoring God and relying on himself. And that is always wrong for us to do. Now, that might be a shock for some of us some more than others, because you may have lived most of your life relying on yourself and think, well, you know, I'm, I haven't died. I mean, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here, I'm alive, I'm breathing. Yes, because God and his grace has sustained you, but to realize to, to live self-reliant is sin because we are created to be entirely dependent upon God. Now, how could we tell if we were ignoring God and becoming self-reliant? I thought of three like diagnostic questions. Take your little psychology test here, okay? This is how you can tell if, if you're on the self-reliant side versus on the God-reliant side. So try these out. Ask yourself this question. How often do you pray about your work? That work might be cooking meals for your family, taking care of your kids, driving people everywhere. That might mean that kind of work. It might mean you know, putting together a budget for your team or preparing a marketing plan or figuring out a construction problem, okay, all kinds of different things. But how often do you pray about your work? If you don't pray about your work very often, then you are you're on the self-reliant side, okay? All right? If you pray a lot about your work, you're on, your, on the God-reliant side. Second question. When I face a problem, big problem could be home, family, relationship, work, do I ask God for help 
Do I intentionally say, God, I've got a problem, help me, or do I just try to figure it out on my own? Okay, answer honestly, which, which do you do? You got a problem, do you ask God for help, or do you just figure this out? If you ask God for help, then you're relying on God. You're living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. If you don't ask God for help, then you're living by bread alone. You're relying on your own abilities and strengths and capabilities. Third question. When you have to make hard decisions, some of you are making hard decisions now about whether you should travel or not. Those are painful. Okay, husbands and wives sometimes, I mean, those are hard, hard calls to make or any kind of hard decision. But when you face a hard, difficult decision, do I seek God for wisdom or do I just ignore God and think, 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 list of pros and cons, internet, Google it or whatever, right? What do you do? Do you, do you rely on God or do you rely entirely on yourself? And if you, if you don't pray and ask God for help, if you don't seek God for wisdom, then you're living by bread alone. But if you seek God for wisdom, ask him for help, then you're living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So I, I hope we can all see right now, none of us are totally relying on God. Anybody here just completely 100% relying on God all the time? I'm not. You're not either, okay? We're all in, in somewhere in here, right? So how do we move more towards this side? How do we fight I mean, do you all feel the temptation about how easy it is to be reliant? Oh my goodness. I mean, we can go through major portions of every day just with God not even in our minds, right? So how do we fight that temptation? Two weapons. One is the power of the Spirit. Hello, remember, the power of the Spirit. And then secondly, what is it? The Word of God. Okay, so let's, here's how this might work. So how do we access the power of the Holy Spirit? We pray and we ask, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit upon me now. I can't change my heart. I am so self-reliant. Help me. Bring the power of the Holy Spirit through the word to change my heart. So we ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we open up the scripture to verses that would speak to this issue, like Deuteronomy 8.3. You could pray through that whole scenario. They couldn't do anything. They were humbled, and God provided for them. That's how I really always am, Lord. Or let me give you a second verse that I think you might want to use, and there's lots of others, but look at John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. He's talking about grape vines, grape branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for, underline these seven words, apart from me, you can do nothing. So how much can you do apart from Christ? None. Nothing of any significance. Now he may allow you to get stuff done by his grace, but we should have been relying on him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So to fight this temptation, ask for the work of the Holy Spirit, and then take time to pray and think over verses like this. Father, help me to see the truth that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. That is, as much schooling as I might have had, as amazing as my CV might look, as much success as I might have had, truly, apart from you, I can do nothing. Help me see that. 
Help me feel that so I rely upon you all the more. And as you pray over these scriptures and ask for the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will change your heart. Your humility will grow. Your self-reliance will shrink. Your reliance upon God will grow, and you'll be conquering that temptation. See how that works? So two ways to fight temptation, the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. Let's look at the second temptation. Verses five through eight, what does Luke emphasize? And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours, Jesus. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And notice how Luke emphasizes that somehow the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all their authority and all their glory. I mean, think of Rome and Egypt and Ethiopia and all these kingdoms of the world, and Jesus saw all of this and the devil was hoping that Jesus would be dazzled by all of this and that he would want that more than God the Father. The devil was hoping Jesus would say, oh, look at that. You can give that to me? I can have all of that? And that God moves out of his picture. He ignores God the Father, turns from God the Father, and says he wants all of that. That's what the devil was hoping would happen. Then the devil tells Jesus, how Jesus can get it. The devil says, I can give this to whomever I wish. It all belongs to me. Now, let's just pause for a second and think about that. Is that true? Does all of this belong to the devil and can he give it to whomever he wish? It is true that Paul says Satan is the god of this world. And because of our sin, God has allowed the curse to come, has allowed the world to a great degree to come under Satan's authority. But remember the story of Job. Satan can do nothing apart from asking God's permission. Satan is entirely under the Father's, God the Father's, God's authority. Nothing. Satan can't do anything apart from God purposefully allowing it. So Satan is lying to Jesus here. He's trying to deceive Jesus. He can't give this world's authority and glory to anybody, anybody he chooses. Satan's trying to deceive him. And then he says, he's hoping he's deceiving Jesus. I can give it to anybody I want and just worship me. Just worship me, it's all yours. And Jesus' answer, I, just, I love it, just nails it. He goes for the jugular here. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, period. God, the Father, is Jesus' joy and glory. His majesty is infinitely beautiful, like Pastor Ben was praying earlier. God is spectacular in his love and compassion and power and authority and justice and wisdom. Compared to him, Satan, you are scum. You are nothing. Worship you? <laughs> Look at God. Are you kidding me? 
and you're lying besides. So, no, I'm not going to do that. Thou shalt worship the Lord your God. Look at him. Compared to you, no contest. No contest. So the devil, is say, the devil is tempting Jesus to turn from God and worship an empty lie. Turn from God, worship an empty lie. And you know what? We are tempted to do that every day. This is at the root of every temptation that we face. Let me give you an example. You're a man, you're a woman, and, and you'd, you'd like to get married. You're not married, you'd like to get married. So you're, you're a woman, you're looking for a, a wonderful man to marry. You're a man, you're looking for a wonderful woman to marry, and you're a follower of Jesus, and so you know that Jesus would call you to marry somebody who loves him, following him, trusting him. But the problem is it just hasn't really worked out yet with any of the men or the women you know who love and trust Jesus. Just, there's just not, you know, the chemistry's not there, the, the spark isn't there, it's just, it's not happening there. And, uh, but you know what? There's someone at your workplace, just really fun person, attractive person, and you think that you think they might like you. And you're thinking, you know, that maybe this is a possibility. Uh, I mean, I know they don't love Jesus, but, man, I really want to get married. So, you know, why not? Now, at that moment, you are being tempted to turn from God and worship an empty lie. That's what you're being tempted to do. So how can we fight this temptation? That, that, that kind of temptation comes at us in thousands of different shapes and sizes and flavors every single day, all kinds of different ways, but it's all the same thing. Turn from God, who is your all-satisfying joy. Turn from God, who is worthy of all your worship, and worship an empty lie. How do we fight that temptation? I mean, some of you might have, there's a desire in your heart right now to, to move towards something that is away from God and that the Bible says it's an empty lie, but you still desire it, right? Can, can we still desire empty lies? Absolutely we can. We are deceived. Sin deceives us. And so how do we fight those temptations? We need two things, remember? Okay, help me out here. What's the first one? The power of the Spirit. Okay, we're slowly getting this, all right? And what's the second one? Help me out here. The Word of God, right? So first of all, we need the power of the Spirit. I can't change my own heart. I can grit my teeth and hope that that desire goes away. I can try to distract myself and hope that it goes away. Doesn't work. I need the power of the Spirit who can supernaturally change my heart. So I ask God, give me more of the power of the Holy Spirit. Help me. I want to follow you, but right now I'm wanting something else. Help me, set me free, change me. He will always answer that prayer. And then we open up the scriptures. So we could use the scripture that Jesus used. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only God is worthy of my worship, my devotion, my following. Anything that would take me away from God, like drifting over here, not worth it. S stay with God. Anything that would make me drift over here, not worth it. So you could use that verse. Here's another one I thought might be helpful that I have found helpful. Philippians chapter three, verse eight. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, you've asked for the power of the Holy Spirit to use his word to change your heart, and then you think about this verse. You ponder this verse, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Lord, thank you, that is so true. I've had times where I've tasted such joy in you that I've wanted nothing else. Your joy is surpassing. The worth of you is better than anything, anything else. And so as we pray over verses like this and think over verses like this, the Holy Spirit will remind us of the reality of Jesus and the joy of Jesus. And he'll give us a longing to be with Jesus and to follow him in every area, including who we do or don't marry. And when the Holy Spirit changes our heart in that way, then we will not turn from God and worship an, an empty lie because the Spirit has used the word to change our hearts. That's the second temptation. One more. What's the meaning of the third temptation? Look at verses 9 through 12. Notice what Luke emphasizes. And he, the devil, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, I think that means since you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, let me just pause at this point and I wanna point something out. I've, I've heard Bible teachers and commentators say that there probably would have been a lot of people around the pinnacle of the temple and so this is a matter of Jesus doing something to impress people around him. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on here, but Luke just doesn't say anything about that. No people, no, no people mentioned here at all. It's just Jesus and the devil and the pinnacle and the angels, okay? That's all that there is there. So I, I don't think that's the direction Luke wants us to look in. I think there's, a, there's another direction that's going on here. So if you're the son of God, since you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And now notice, the devil quotes the Bible. Did you know that the devil can quote the Bible to us? Okay, so we need to know the Bible better than the devil does, and we'll be able to understand that he's lying to us, but look at what the devil says. It is written, this is from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the devil was tempting Jesus to put God to the test. That was the temptation here. Jesus would be testing God. That's the issue. What does that mean? Oh, I've, I've, I've labored with that one for, for many years. What does it mean to test God? Here's what I think. You keep working on it. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. Let's read the whole verse. Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Okay, what happened at Massa? That'll help us understand what it meant to put the Lord to the test. And Massa, that incident there is described in Exodus chapter 17. Let's look at this. Start with verses one and two and then I'll skip down to verse seven. Here's what it means to test God. 
All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. That doesn't mean like sin like trespasses. It's just a geographical name. It doesn't mean sin like we mean it today, okay? This is just a place. So they moved on from that wilderness by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Lots of people, deserts like Lewa, desert, nothing there, okay? Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Then skip down to verse 7. And he called the name of the place Masa, which sounds like the Hebrew word for quarrel, and Meribah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for test, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Testing God means demanding that he do your will. When we test God, we're demanding that he does what we want him to do. And that's what Israel was doing here at Massa. I mean, God had delivered them. I mean, get the picture. He delivered them from Egypt with amazing signs and wonders. Remember the story? They came up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies are charging behind them. God opened up the Red Sea. Israel goes across on dry lands. And then as Pharaoh's armies come in, God has the Red Sea part, destroys all of Pharaoh's armies. I mean, they'd seen God work miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But now there's no water and they're thirsty. So instead of thinking God's worked all these miracles, he's going to totally take care of this. Instead of trusting God, they demanded their own way. They were saying to God something like, I thought you were God. You told us you were, you were God. If you're, if you're really God, give us water now. That's what they were doing. Do you feel how wrong that is? They were demanding that God do their will. And that's what the devil was tempting Jesus to do. Test God by demanding that he do your will. The devil is saying, listen, God promised that he would have his angels guard you, that they would carry you. So go ahead, show that God's word is true. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And of course, if God had called Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, God would have held him up, carried him, because God was calling him to do that. But God had not called Jesus to do that. That would have been Jesus' will, not God's will. And so the devil is tempting Jesus to test God by demanding that God do your will. And we're tempted to do the same thing, aren't we? Try to think of an illustration. I mean, there's probably thousands of them, but let's say that you and your spouse both work, okay? You're both working, God's provided you jobs, and you have a child who's in school, and then you hear the government say that schools are closed for four weeks and you're processing that, and your frustration starts to rise. You need these jobs. These are good jobs. Your, your anger starts to rise. Your, your bitterness starts to rise, and you find yourself getting angry at God, saying, like, God, you gave us both of these jobs. You gave us this child. How is this going to work? you got to do something. This is a big problem. Solve it for us. You are God, aren't you? Help us out here. 
Now, see, that's not humble prayer. That's testing God. Big difference there. So, what should we do in those situations? You feel the anger rising up? You want to test God, demand that he do your will? Okay, we need two things at that point. We need the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. So we ask for the power of the Spirit. Look at my anger, Father. I'm so sorry. Help me. This is wrong. Change my heart by your power. Let your Spirit use the Word to change my heart. So then you, you open up to scriptures like Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You could pray over that, ponder that. You could look at this one. I, I picked one from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Think of how powerful this would be. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Okay, there you are, two jobs, child out of school, what are you going to do? And you pray over the scripture, and the Holy Spirit would first of all help you start to see God cares for you. God is not surprised by this. God has allowed this to take place. You can trust him. He parted the Red Sea for you. He set you free from Egypt. He sent his own son to the cross for you. You can trust him. He loves you. Nothing can separate you from his love. He cares for you. He has a plan to bring great good to you through this. So the Holy Spirit would help you see how much God cares for you. And then you'd see how mighty God's hand is, right? Humble yourselves under the, the mighty hand of God. God is in sovereign control over whatever this government does, sovereign control over the coronavirus, sovereign control over schools being opened or closed, sovereign control over what we're gonna do. He can take care of this. He cares for us, and he's got a mighty hand. That's a beautiful combination. Loving hand, mighty hand, we're good to go. It's all we need, God's loving hand and God's mighty hand. And so you're praying over this, and the anger would start to subside. You'd say, God, I, I don't know what you're gonna do, but you're gonna, you care for us, and you're all-powerful. You will do something, and I guarantee you, God will do something. He will not leave you on your own. He will take care of that situation, but let's not become angry and test God, demanding him to do our will. Let's humble ourselves and seek his will. So that's what Jesus was being tempted to do. He overcame it by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, and we will overcome by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. Now, one last crucial question from this passage. What about when we fail and sin? Because that happens, right? Please help me out here, right. That totally happens. And yes, church, let's fight sin. We never, ever have an excuse to sin. We have the power of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. We have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Every temptation that comes our way by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, we can slay. And yet, to our shame and in our sin, we often don't. But there's good news for us about that in this passage. What's the good news? It's that Jesus resisted every temptation. And he never succumbed to any temptation. 
Jesus Christ is the only human being who has never sinned. I mean, think of the billions of people, billions of human beings that have lived, are living, will live. Jesus is the only human being who has never sinned. And everybody else has like completely sinned, right? We've been dead in sin. Jesus Christ, the sinless one. Here's what that means. Here's why this is good news. When Jesus was on the cross, being punished for sin, horrifying punishment, it was not being punished for his sin. He hadn't sinned. He was being punished for the sins of all those who would put their trust in him. That's you. I pray. I trust. And so when you come to Jesus and say, I I have sinned, and by the way, use language like sinned. Don't say, I made a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. You chose to sin. You you, you meant to sin. Hello? Okay? I sinned. I, I rebelled against you. I transgressed against you. When we come and when we repent, forgive me, we turn our hearts back to Christ, say, I, I want you, help me, change me, cleanse me. He's running toward us at that point with open arms. He loves us. He will completely forgive you for that sin. Like, completely, completely. He will wash you clean from that sin, cleansed. He will comfort you. He will encourage you. He will strengthen you. He will pour his love into your heart. He'll give you fresh faith. And he'll say, now, get back into the battle and fight against sin the way I did. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. So Grace Church, that's what I want to call us to do. Fight sin by the power of the Spirit and the word of God. If you have been sinning, if there is unconfessed sin in your heart right now, deal with it. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, can completely forgive you for that, change your heart, and help you. Don't hold on to unconfessed sin. That is exceedingly dangerous. This morning, confess, repent, and then let's all, Grace Church, get back into the battle and resist every temptation by the power of the Spirit with the Word of God. Isn't that awesome? We love Jesus. Let's stand and thank him. Lord Jesus, we do love you. What a gracious redeemer you are. You never sinned. You were tempted in every way as we are. None of us has come close to being tempted to the extent that you were, and you resisted everyone. And so you can be a savior who pays for our sins on the cross. Lord, pour out forgiveness right now on those who need to confess unconfessed sin. Pour out forgiveness right now. Those who've been battling temptation, pour out strength, pour out even more of the power of your spirit, bring scriptures to mind that they could use to battle. But Lord, help us at Grace Church this week to battle every temptation by the power of the spirit and the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.